Welcome to the Spy Who Raised Me podcast. Conversations between a daughter and her father. Yes, you've guessed it. He was a spy. So, Dad, we're sitting in Aberdeenshire in my husband Mike's furniture workshop because it's the only cool place. It's slap bang in a heat wave and you're up visiting I don't think the temperature that we've reached is as high as it is in the south of England, which is merciful, really, because I think they're experiencing 36 to 40 degrees Celsius. And we are a cool 28 or 29 here, weather that we don't normally experience. But still feels, feels hot. It does. So we're cool in the workshop. And we've just been discussing Ukraine and Russia. So we've been in this awful situation where Putin ordered an invasion of Ukraine and it's really made us think about and talk about dad's career in intelligence and one of the constants in your career was Russia. Why was that and what do you think about what's going on in Ukraine now? Well I think there's always been an awareness that Russia has the potential to be a very bad neighbour in Europe, but also across the world. And there have been so many instances of aggression and of Russia seeking to bring back territory that they felt was part of the Soviet Empire before 1989, before the collapse of communism. So it's, um, it has reached a point where... All the pundits are scratching their heads because the uh, invasion of Ukraine has had repercussions across the world, not just between Europe and Ukraine and Russia, but all the big powers are being affected in some way and are beginning to change their, their approach. America is probably case in point, certainly in Europe, with the complications of uh, Brexit as far as Britain's concerned, but also in, with the threat to some of the, the um, historically neutral countries like Norway and Sweden, who have always vowed not to be part of NATO and to do the thing which they've done uh, exceptionally well during the Cold War. And they have kept their neutrality. But now, with the pressure of, of uh, Ukraine and Putin, who seems somewhat demented to the rest of the world, but he has such a clear vision, I think, as he sees it, of grabbing some of the land that, that heretofore was part of the Soviet Union. So he, it's, his um, strategy is obviously to try and take back some of the areas like Crimea, like Georgia, where he feels that Russians are in control or should be in control. So this is why in, in uh, that part of the coast of the Black Sea, he's trying to negotiate a, a means by which he can he can take control of, of larger areas. And this is a great fear in Germany and in other countries in Europe. And of course, economically, because of his his uh, control over energy supplies, he has a very strong hand to play. 
And of course the Europeans are now sitting back thinking, oh my God, why did we agree to signing a deal giving us our energy almost predominantly from Russia? So Russia now can control that. They can turn on the tap, they can turn off the tap. But also with the, with the added shock of invasion uh, in the Ukraine and with the uh, arsenal of weapons they have now, which are not, which are not just battlefield weapons, but weapons that, that can threaten well, as far as America. They're just so, they're so um, well organized that we just have to wait and see what the next move is. From Russia. Politically, diplomatically, what do you think is going on in the intelligence circles or what has been going on since Russia invaded? Give us an insight into what sort of conversations, what sort of international relations, what sort of changes to international security will have happened as a result of this invasion. Well, I think it's changed quite markedly since since the 80s, where it was a question of having targets that were of interest to the um, security services in the UK, in America, in Australia, and, and New Zealand. And that has changed so much in the last few years. I mean, the types of weapons they're using, types of communication they're using... It is now very difficult with the present uh, communication setup um, to control what's being sent. And also, the Russians in particular, probably to, the, to a lesser extent, the Chinese have the ability to corrupt the communication channels between, between the Allies and between European countries and so on. So cyber security is such an important part of uh, of how work is done now. And of course, uh, America, I think, has been slow to react to that, as has Europe. And uh, everyone's beginning to realise that um, they have to get control of, of that. Chinese and Russians may be working together, they may not be. But it's, it's a huge threat when your own communications are not secure, when uh, systems systems of of um, collecting information is corrupted by the Russians and by the Chinese and by other countries, so they're never quite sure whether they can be certain of um, cyber security, which is a massive massive uh, consideration if if you're if you're looking at a potential. Uh, invasion of the whole of Europe and not America. I, th- I don't think the Russians would contemplate after the furore in the 60s when, when uh, they got into Cuba with nuclear weapons. So that point about cyber security, how does the intelligence community, so the US, Europe, and other allies, how do they defend themselves from that cyber threat? Is it just a case of keeping one step ahead of the Russians, or are there other techniques that you think that they will be using? Well, I think I think the problem is it's so complicated now, because the Chinese, I think, probably, and 
Chinese in particular, have been aware of the possibilities of corrupting collection, intelligence collection by other countries. But of course they have been instrumental in in providing a lot of the components that are used in modern uh, communications, chips and things like that. I mean, they, they control not just the manufacture of those things, but also the source of, of uh, different chemicals that they need to provide that. So that's why in the last um, decade, probably, the Brits have been conscious of, of this massive threat and of the possibility of all the communications being subverted or misdirected in the sense that when they send information, data information, by the satellite, if, it's, uh, if the components with which their, their communications are set up were manufactured in, in uh, China, it's a very difficult thing with the software um, problems to find out what what they've done, which is why Huawei, the you know all that uh, all that furore was was to do with with that. How much do they know? How much can they control even even systems of war, like guided missiles, like uh, protective screens for for possibility of attack from Russia, say. I mean, all of that is is just a huge worry for people, and and we're slow to begin. I think China, in particular, over the last twenty years, maybe more, have been creating an empire which is fairly docile, not aggressive, very intrusive into all these countries where essential chemicals are are necessary. They've invested in them. They're now in control of, of huge parts of the world where they have unlimited access to all those things that are required for a high-tech communication system. And and I think the Americans are just beginning to realise that. Of course, they have a lot of Chinese people who are learning how to put communication systems together in Silicon Valley and places like that. Now, to what extent those people who have been experimenting and and supporting investment in in America and in Europe, to what extent some of the systems have been, without the host countries knowing, have been incorporated in in these now what they are supplying for the rest of the world. So it's a very very complex situation, and of course you can see that by. By the way, the Brits and but the Americans and the whole of Europe have now increased dramatically the amount of um, people who are working on cyber security. Yeah, and of course GCHQ has invested a huge amount into cyber. They've got a new facility in London. Well, they've ramped up their recruitment and also their outreach into the community to try and find um, good people to go and work in, in GCHQ because of this cyber threat. How far do you think they will have come in those years since they've ramped up their cyber focus? What I can gather and what I you can glean from various sources, they are way ahead of, of Europe. They're way ahead of America. Certainly in America, they have certain areas where they have invested a lot of money. But it's still the case that 
uh, you know, as far as certainly the armed forces are concerned, they are very nervous about deploying uh, troops and equipment to um, places like, uh, well, like the Ukraine whether and in Afghanistan, whether the quality of the information they're getting and what on which they base their their uh, approach to invaded countries like like uh, Afghanistan, they're not at all sure that that what they have is is bona fide and can be used as the sole source of of uh, background intelligence. So, what other sources would they be using to get that in, uh, information? Well, I mean, they use the normal using diplomatic uh, sources, but also targeting, I guess, some of the leaders who are who are uh, like Putin uh, to try and build up a picture of what their thought processes might might be, because it's not just a question now of wondering whether countries like Russia can be a huge, important force in attacking other countries. We know they are. We know they're ahead, some of them, and, and we know that energy and supply of, of uh, gas and of oil and so on is such a crucial factor because they can't, they, they know that they can turn the tap off and, and cripple a European system that, that depends so heavily on energy and why why those countries particularly Germany uh, were foolish enough to to sign into that and it just shows you that that the economics of countries and areas has changed so dramatically uh, sources of food heating aging populations increasing populations all of those things are factors and of course the supply of energy is is a nerve nerve center because if you don't have gas, if you don't have various things, if you don't have the supplies that should be coming in and from uh, other countries, countries like Africa, like DRC, like Kazakhstan, like I mean, there's so many sources now of essential chemicals from other countries that. We've just missed the plot, I think, in all those areas, which are Manchuria too is another one I can I can think of, where they've been working away the Chinese in particular, looking for sources of energy uh, that they can control, and and that has put put uh, the whole of the Western world in in a predicament that none of them. Foresaw, or at least if they did, they weren't aware of the seriousness of the situation. Yeah, and it takes me on to thinking about sanctions. You know, they're all well and good, uh, putting sanctions on Russia. Um, but some countries, some companies really struggle to separate those ties because they're so dependent on energy from Russia. So we can sanction and stop imports and stop money movements but as long as that energy supply is still there, as the world prices have gone up yes. to the to the level that they are, yeah. then there's still a steady supply of income for Russia to Absolutely. be able to fund what it needs to do in Ukraine. Absolutely. And of course, energy means food because you need energy to, to uh, manufacture fertilizer. 
you need money to be able to store huge amounts of food, as is the case in the Ukraine, where they have huge storage areas for for uh, different types of grain. I mean, they have produced what ten percent of the of the food in the in the civilized world. So so here we are with a situation where, in Odessa and other points across the Black Sea, there are huge amounts of, of grain from, from last year and they can't move them. And now now it sounds like whether it's true or whether it's not, the Russians are beginning to move some of that, especially in the the, the Donbass and that, that that area. Which makes you think, well, what should they be doing in the Black Sea? Because the Black Sea is is they have access to it. So has the Ukraine, so has Turkey. Uh, so have a few other countries, and you would think that if there was a pinch point uh, now in that area to make sure that at least parts of the rest of the world could benefit from uh, from those huge uh, stores of food, that um, as with um, as with the ship, the battleship that was sunk in the, in the Black Sea few months ago. I mean, that, that sort of thing will harass the, the Russians and perhaps make them reach a point where they're thinking, well, this isn't working. Uh, but whilst they've, got, whilst they've got that, and as you're saying, Jane, the, the um, fact that they have control of the energy, they're so strong. I mean, they're really so strong and, and it's, it's going to be so difficult. Some the Ukraine, we're lucky that the Ukrainians are so well organised. And and you know politically, but also with their armed forces, they I don't think anybody realised they were so dedicated to Ukraine, and I mean they managed to they managed to subvert the the Russian invasion in various places. But when you see the the absolute absolutely unbelievable amount of weapons that Russia has stored over the past two decades or so. Uh, I mean, they've just—it's incredible—and so. But the Ukrainians, given the circumstances, given some, given some support by other countries, given some systems that can nullify the the Russians with their superior weapons, they've done a fantastic job, really. Yeah, I I agree, Dad, and it's um, it's interesting, heartening just sobering to see how Ukraine has responded. I mean, there's such patriotism, such love of their land. Those poor people have been through so much, destroyed everything that they have. Mm. And under great leadership, I mean, Zelensky has been tremendous, hasn't he? At rallying his opponents Mm -hmm. in the political sphere to support him his decision-making, the country, the nation has been behind him despite some horrible decisions for families Mm. where the men of the family have been left in Ukraine to fight. And meanwhile, families, pets Mm. have moved away from Ukraine to safety, which is absolutely right. But that dedication to the leader and to the cause for the country is just... You don't expect it in this era, do you? No, you don't. I think... You know, the situation where I live, 
some of the refugees, Ukrainian refugees, are, are now settled in villages around uh, in Oxfordshire, uh, which is a, an amazing thing. But it's so it's quite humbling to see, because in the village I live in, there are now in excess of 50 Ukrainian refugees who have moved in, and it's only a village with 300 homes, I think. So it's so it's uh, incredible. But you can see first hand of the difficulties that some of these families have because you know if if a male is over 18 they can't leave the ukraine they have to fight uh, in whatever uh, uh, part of the armed forces so there's this very um, difficult situation where where uh, people come come to this country they settle uh, and they're just remarkably well. They're just fantastic people. But you'll hear some someone talking to their husband who's in in the front line, and uh, you can hear the sound of, of shelling and so. It has. I've spoken to some of the people living in your village mm. in North Morton. It's been just wonderful to see how the community has mm. embraced um, people from Ukraine. You know, mothers, children. Godsons, yeah. nephews, just that not only have you seen families within the UK taking people in, but you've also seen families from Ukraine helping one another out to, to bring pets and children over. But it's just been so lovely to see how the community has rallied in, mm. in your village and really embraced them, helped them, because they've come here with absolutely nothing other than their passports. Absolutely. And they have to set up their lives from scratch. They've got no money. They've got no citizenship, nowhere to go to school. So they've come needing all of that set up. So the families have not only welcomed them in, but they've mm -hmm. also sorted out everything that they need in their lives. Dentists, doctors, yeah, all of that. social security support, hospital mm -hmm. appointments, doctor's appointments, getting started at a new school, you know, just... Oh, it's, it's never ending. And, and it's... It's happened so quickly. I mean, from the first indication that, you know, we in the village could could accept uh, refugees, it's it's just phenomenal how, how quickly it's been set up, how the lines of communication have been set up, how the schools have been, you know, consulted. And I mean, they have, they have been, uh, most of them, incredible. It's quite an interesting aside that some of the private schools... Uh, and there are a lot of people, uh, children from that uh, area, from the village I live in, but also in that in that area, who go to private schools, a lot of different private schools, some of them quite prestigious. And, and uh, it was quite an interesting thing to observe how quickly local primary schools and secondary schools reaching out to the refugee children. Within weeks... Of them arriving, they were saying, "Oh well, we could maybe do this." I don't think the private schools were quite so forthcoming. But there's, there has been some lovely stories of a hundred percent support for, you know, for bright children, yes, for bright children. to go into, um, you know, other forms of education, yes. private grammar, because they were on a really good trajectory back in Ukraine. And it's been great to see those examples as well as yes. the, you know, the state schools welcoming them in. 
experience. And, and gearing them themselves up to have language skills to be able to support these yeah. children um, as they come into school. Some of them don't speak English. Some of them don't speak English, but they have, they have an aptitude for, for language. And it's amazing how uh, quickly, I mean, a lot of the villagers have got together. So they have a class of, I think it's four villagers, people who volunteer to go and, and set up a language training thing in the village hall, which is, which is great. But uh, and it's interesting to see, too, the, the disparity in, <clears throat> in education facilities throughout the United Kingdom. One, one very bright young Ukrainian who, who uh, moved into the village a few months ago, he, um, he was saying he's contacting a couple of u- universities. And he, he said, uh, and I think Glasgow University might be, might be a place. And I said, why, why Glasgow University? He said, well, it's got a good reputation, but also you don't have to pay. <laughs> <laughs> And it was interesting. We, I know uh, there was a family in your village where there was a possibility of a, one of the children going to a private school. And the mother made the decision absolutely correctly for her circumstance that the school was a long way away. She didn't know how long that school would oh, support yeah. her yes. child. And also it was likely that she was, as her mother, she was likely to be working in the town where the local comprehensive was. Mm-hmm. And so for her, the practical and the right decision was for the child to go to the local comprehensive yeah, where they could travel in in the morning together. Mm. It would save them cost, uh, yes. um, a free bus that would take them in. So the practicalities of living yes. um, have, have dictated a lot of the decisions that the families have made. Yeah, that's true. And they are, I mean, all of them seem very sensible. And, and the, the interesting thing, too, is how, how uh, quickly they have become a group. Not one that's, that's uh, a divorce from the activities of, the, of the, the village, but one that's seeking to join some of the, the committees... To be a part of that community. And one really good example, Dad, was the, the project you started during lockdown, which was putting up polytunnels mm. on community-owned land. And you gained funding from the local community council to put up those polytunnels. Well, mm. number two is going up now. Um, and you've said that that's been a real draw for the U- Ukrainian people in your community. They've come, they want to grow things. Yes. Yeah, they love doing that. So now we've got, I mean, we've encouraged them at the very beginning and uh, some of them live quite close to the, uh, to the project and they come now, so they'll come and say, oh, we, we got some cabbages and we got this and we got it. but they don't stop there. Then what happens, a couple of days later, they'll come and say, oh, we've made this, you know, like salads or... There's one dish where where they chop up various things like beetroot and other vegetables, because borscht. They so they they've planted loads of beetroot and radish and pumpkins, and and there's the chatting all the time saying, "Hey, we could do this, we could do that," and you heard about the the event they organised themselves, no help from the village, in the recreation ground, and they set up 
It's only a couple of weeks ago. Very secretive it was. They weren't telling us uh, what they were intending to do, but when it happened on the night, I think there must have been about 100 and, I know, 120 people who came. And they'd made all the food. They had dressed up in national dress. They'd done the Ukrainian um, welcoming dance where they all, you know, all 50 or however many there were stood up. One little girl uh, did a wee bit of um, tick-tock dancing. And one was an opera singer. So all this was going on. <laughs> it was bizarre because they were... They would come, come as people came into the recreation ground. They were coming up and welcoming them. Those who spoke English were saying welcome and come and have a drink, and it was incredible. What a lovely thing! It's just it shows how grateful they are and how much they want to share their culture. It comes back to that point about how, how. You know how that sense of pride, national pride, is just so strong in Ukraine. Incredible. And we've seen that at every turn in this conflict, haven't we? So adaptable. But one of the, you know, listening to some of them, I I kind of got involved in in, uh, dropping some of the closer ones, you know, who were in the village. They wanted to go shopping. I would say, you know, I would say, well, just... just, uh, Text me and I'll, I can take you in. You see, so that was fine. But they were saying, as as they have settled, they've also um, they've begun to be more open about what's happening in the Ukraine. You see, I was chatting to one who speaks good English, and I said, "What's it like in those areas where you know there are some Russian speaking?" And she said, "It's really difficult." She said, "We now, as a family, view themselves as Ukrainian." But they have other bits of the family who are further east in the Donbass and, and some in Russia. And uh, she said it's just impossible. There is so much bad information. And of course, the Russian media is, is controlled. Every bit of it is controlled. So the stuff that they're spouting at, at Russia is so, so closed in. No, no um, world uh, news. It's all done to say to Russian people in the Ukraine too and the Ukrainians we're doing this it's 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 not a war really we're doing this it's a it's a military exercise which is absolute nonsense of course so they're all it's it's created a lot of divisions in uh, between the Ukrainians and uh, and the Russians in that in that area at a familial level that's mm. that's you don't think about that do you and Dad, how do you think this will play out? You know, the, the the conflict's been going on for well over six months now. It doesn't look like it's going to abate. Um, it, what what are your views? How do you think this will play out? How do you think it will end? Well, I think it's so difficult because, I mean, you, we've now got America who've taken quite a strong uh, hand in it, a, having, I think, lost their ascendancy in, in world politics because of Afghan, Afghanistan, uh, basically. And, of course, with, with Brexit and all the shenanigans there, the Europeans, and um, Turkey was a big, was a big uh, part of 
is a big part of what's happening because they sound as if, although Erdogan is is uh, one of uh, Putin's friends, he does sound as if he's backed off a bit from that and is beginning to look at other countries and also the food supplies from from and that's going to be a huge issue because because it affects uh, you know all the countries and especially in Africa who are suffering like Somalia and Eritrea and well throughout throughout Africa they just will not have enough food so so they're going to try and release I think I think the Ukrainians probably have managed to spit it some of some of those stored um, corn and and sunflower seeds away but the America, the Russians have they think managed to stop that in certain areas and they they have taken some of the food because they'll be short of food too, feeding an army that's that's you know quite away from Moscow. Just just hearing you say that, you know, there's no, I don't sense from you that you see this ending anytime soon. I feel the same. I, I just feel there is escalation, if anything, because the Ukrainians are getting more armaments, more defence support. Uh, NATO is still doing its job of being, um, you know, yeah. uh, it's slightly impartial mm. self or it, a, a slightly impartial force, yes. but it is also gaining in strength. So Norway and Sweden, you know, that's a big move. Turkey backing down on not allowing them to join is a big move. Yes. So there are some some you know, big things happening within the defence mm. world, but I don't, like you, I don't see an end to this no. anytime soon, no. which is gravely worrying from a practical point of view, mm. energy, food, uh, inflation, um, but also from a, a world security perspective. Yeah. If, if anything, one positive thing that will come out of this is the international relationships post-COVID, where most countries become very became very nationalistic, focused on survival of their nation getting people vaccinated if anything it has opened up the world to unite some parts of the world to unite over this over this yeah, issue i think that's i think that's true and i think uh, that's a good thing that that should have should have happened but we're still you know i mean some of the western nations europe and america certainly they're you know they have ambivalent views on refugees, for example. I mean, it's this. This is huge. Climate change, with the lack of food, with with the increase in population, the numbers who are appearing, uh, it's going to be a big and bigger problem. And people, maybe uh, predominantly from Africa, but also other poor nations, they're, they're going to they're going to start. Well, up the tempo and they'll be looking for for settling in other countries in our attitude and i think probably americans attitude it's 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 such a controversial thing and i mean i i can uh you know when you look back at angela merkel and um her famous weekend when she when she let in i don't know how many was it a million or something or half a million refugees, refugees. Yeah. I mean, she's east german so that would probably have affected her but I mean, we're going to have to relax the number of people we're allowing to come in and sending them off to Rwanda, for example, is just, well. Yeah, 
Well, let's not get on to mm. Boris Johnson and his politics. We'll be here for another three hours. <laughs> it's just laughable. It is. It is. So, yeah, so that's all interesting, Jenny. And I think, you know, future podcasts, we now have, I mean, we haven't made podcasts for, for quite some time for the simple reason that that uh, so much is happening. You know, you feel now that there's so much happening that that are not up-to-date uh, podcast on what is happening, maybe with with a different view. And there's some, I mean, some of, some of the reporting uh, um, that we're hearing now is just fantastic. You know, like John Simpson and others who are really digging in and getting some some valuable stuff, you know, from Ukraine, within Ukraine, but also also in the, in the Russian area. Yeah, we're ever grateful to our media, and mm. we're we're so lucky to have media that's free, yes. um, and that and that how that are funded to be able to go out and tell these stories, yeah. and long may that continue. And dangerous. I mean, some of those assignments are. Oh. Yeah, they take on a, such a huge personal responsibility, they do. don't they? But anyway, Dad, that's forty minutes, no, and it, it is, and it's been. Absolutely lovely talking to you in person. We don't see enough of each other and I do love listening to you. I always learn so much about your views and your past and your thoughts and you think deeply about things. You listen to so much and you've had had LBC up to your ear for the the last (laughs) 24 hours listening to what's going on in the world and, you know, that's such a, a healthy way to live your life about, you know, what's going on in the world, keeping up to date and having debates like this. So yeah, thank you. I, I think it is. I think it's wonderful. You think it'll make a difference in the long run? Well, there's, there's uh, you know, naval gazing and looking to see whether our system, political and economic, I think we'll look, we'll look back in five years' time and say, well... I hope so. I, I think conversation is the starting point for resolution. Um, and I think if more people talk about their differences as well as where they agree, um, then, you know, and I wish Zelensky and Putin could do that, but yes. pff, it's it's not going to happen anytime too soon. So in the meantime, we'll Just watch on. And see what Putin's going to do. You know the, you know the dog litter bin in, in the village where, where uh, somebody has put or a, a dog poo? Round, round the back of the bed and they put, put in. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, let's go and get a glass of homemade elderflower cordial, which is fermenting, so we might be a bit sozzled after we've, we've oh, drunk it. Lovely, that, that's great. And I think the sun has, is it behind the clouds now? I think it might be. It might be a little bit cooler out there. Thank you, Dad. Love you. Love you.